Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, we're diving back into the fascinating life and times of Willie Brown. That's right. We sat down with the former Assembly Speaker and San Francisco Mayor for a conversation on stage at KQED this spring. And if you missed the first part of our conversation, we'll add a link in the podcast show notes. We talked to Brown about his journey from Manila, Texas, to the start of a legal career representing prostitutes in San Francisco. Now we'll hear how Brown went from a failed run for the state assembly to becoming perhaps the most powerful politician in the state. We uh, have a photo of you. You run, you run for the assembly in 1962. You lose. I lost. Narrowly. Narrowly. Come back. Lost by about a thousand votes. Okay, to an incumbent? To a 22-year incumbent. Um, and when I lost, it was, in my opinion, because people didn't get to know me, not enough. So I lost on, learned I'd lost on that Tuesday night. In those days, you could actually count the votes. Uh, you didn't wait three weeks or any of that nonsense. Uh, and so by that Wednesday, it was literally clear to me that if I wanted to win an election any time, I'd better go meet every voter in San Francisco in that district. And so what I did was I went as if the election was still going on. I ring your doorbell and thank you very much for voting for me. I had no idea whether you did or not. <laughs> It didn't matter. But I knew that you would be nice enough not to hurt my feelings by saying, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> I lost by 1,000 votes the first time. Same guy I ran against two years later. I beat him by 4,000 votes. And it was because I had shaken the hand or said hello to every voter possible in the city. And I had a whole list of them in the Longshoremen's were very helpful to me. Uh, they didn't like the, that particular candidate, period. And they assigned a couple of people to walk with me. And so for almost two years, every time I had any free time, I was going ringing doorbells. Hmm. And that paid off handsomely, and it carried me all the way through the mayorship. So. You won in 64. You get to, to Sacramento. Um, you voted against a very powerful speaker and were in the doghouse for a bit, but you climb your way back. No, no, no. I voted against a guy who had voted against me. <laughs> I knew I couldn't get through Named that. Jeff he Unruh? supported my opponent, the incumbent, which is what speakers should do. 
And so when it came time to vote, I don't, I, yeah, I didn't know that you shouldn't be voting against the head guy. And so when they got to my name, uh, I said uh, I voted against him. And John Burton was next in line. And he did the same. We're the best of friends. We went to law school together. We went to college together. He immediately voted. And then there was some crazy guy that we didn't know about. <laughs> he was a PhD in economics named Bill Stanton. So his name, alphabetically, was way down the list. Um, and he considered himself Superman. And he was re regularly at odds with the speaker. And he suddenly discovered that he had two allies. <laughs> that he, we didn't know he, we're his allies, but he voted with us. So three people, for the first time in the history, voted against Jess Unruh for speaker, voted against him. And that meant you were given the worst assignments, the worst office space, the worst everything, Yeah. period. And that worked out really well, uh, <laughs> because in the, in the process of assigning us just made Burton his seatmate, which means Burton didn't really have a seatmate because I was never at his desk. He gave me the guy who was an open racist, literally in the legislature, a guy named Ike Britsky from down somewhere in Santa Clara County. He made me sit with a Republican <laughs> who he was punishing both of us. He was punishing <laughs> me <laughs> based on my having to see with him and punishing him based yeah. on the fact that he had to sit with me. Well, that was my introduction, uh, you know, to a real live Republican. I had never been a real live Republican. Really. Well, let me pick up on that because you, your career in Sacramento, uh, you made a lot of friends with a lot of Republicans and they saved your bacon a few times too. What was it? Why did you go up there and, I don't know if you made friends with him in particular, but there were- I did. <laughs> Believe it or not, I did. He, uh, I sat down next to him and he said, you know that I've never ever been seated next to a, and he used the wrong term. <laughs> so I said, no have I. <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> and, and so we, he laughed and we started to talk and so he said I guess I, I don't know enough about uh, black people uh, why don't you tell me about them and I said I know nothing about white people why don't you tell me about them and we became friends out of literally and he learned a lot got elevated but he, and he voted I think he may have voted so poorly representing his district that he ended up losing. Because I'd tell him how to vote. I knew he didn't read anything. I knew he didn't anything. So I would regularly tell him how to vote. And he enjoyed because it made him different from his other Republicans. Uh, and so it was a good working relationship. For you. Well, I mean, your critics would say that you went after power at all costs. And I, I want to ask you about, well, we have a photo of you. You were known in, I think, the 70s and 80s for driving very nice cars up to Sacramento. Um, here is you with one of your Porsches, <laughs> early days. 
There's a story in one of your bios where they talk about you being pulled over twice in one day by the CHP on the way up to Sacramento. And at the time, they were trying to get some money in their budget, I think, for some new guns. And uh, you stopped it until I think the commissioner went out and showed everyone your photo and said, hey, don't pull this guy over. Critics might say, though, that didn't help any other black people, right? That, that helped Willie. I mean, talk about that. How do you think about those decisions? And to your mind, is it, was that power important not just for you, but for the whole black community? Well, first and foremost, I was elected by a district that had only 13% black people mm -hmm. in it. And there's no reason in the world why uh, any person so elected, if they intended to really be effective, would limit themselves to anything except the problems of the people of the district. Black, white, Asian, everything. Men, women, and what have you. For an example, I had not focused at all on gay and lesbian issues. Mm -hmm. I went to seek the endorsement of an organization called SIR, Society for Individual Rights. There were white people, black people, some of everybody there. I showed up a little late, just behind Burton, but there were five other people who were trying to get the endorsement as well. And each time they made their pitch, they then would close by discussing a, a measure, uh, a new code that would address the issue in one manner or another by eliminating criminal dependence for sexual acts between consenting adults in private. And the place would go crazy. And so I finally asked Burton, Burton, what, 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 what's creating all that? He said, he told me exactly what it was. I was not up to date on it. <laughs> so I knew, however, that there were 400 items in that proposal, that measure, that was just one of the 400 items. And I knew that we politicians often say what we are sincere and we mean, but we're not prepared to sacrifice the other three or four hundred for just that one. I knew that if this crowd was raising all kinds of uh, great reaction that they were raising, when you say, I will vote for the measure, that that's not good, because that measure is never going to be where you test the sincerity of that vote. So I decided, and I was the last speaker, I stood up and said, before we uh, go any further, let me start with the thing that all of you are reacting to. The new evidence code that's being proposed has 400 items in it. You are reacting to only one. There's nowhere in the world that there's going to be an opportunity to vote for just that one unless somebody dumps the rest of them and takes that one up separately. That's what I'm going to do. 
And that's what I did. How long did it take you? I did that. And lo and long before anybody was discussing gay and lesbians, yeah. uh, all those things, I did that because that was the right thing to do. And that was not black, white, or otherwise. And it turned out to be a cornerstone in my existence because until Newsom in 2004 did the same-sex um, marriage approval, I had been the number one person carrying all that, and I was prepared when Newsom did that to fire my whole staff. They should have gotten that for me. There's no way. I, I should have been that many years later. But you don't want ever to be limited to just working on behalf of one component of the constituency which you hope to represent. When I became speaker, I represented the state of California, hmm. literally. And I orchestrated the process in the same way. And there was never an occasion when there was any issue that affected specifically the lives of black people that I did not help orchestrate because I had Elihu Harris would get the assignment, Maxine Waters would get the assignment, Gwen Moore would get the assignment, and it was an assignment given to them by the leader, Willie Brown. Yeah. So, and I also want to give you credit, I think it was 1983, uh, you were speaker at that time, you got the first money into out of George Duke Majin into right. the budget for AIDS. It wasn't even called AIDS then. Well, uh, I, I got to tell you, it, it, it's always uh, a great challenge to try to take people who are f totally foreign to anything that you are advocating. And an opportunity might present itself, particularly if they have power. George Duke Majin was the governor of the state of California we had a serious health problem that required serious money for purposes of research and what have you. And it was such that it didn't have a whole lot of friends, period. Duke Majin, however, had a great desire on a couple of items that represented uh, something that was seriously important to him. The two of us, had lunch together in the basement at the Capitol. And when we left lunch, I got the money for the research and he got what he wanted. Yeah. Very simple, quid pro quo. Yeah. We're gonna take a short break and when we return, we'll hear more from Willie Brown about his years as Ayatollah of the Assembly. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and today we're bringing you part two of our onstage conversation from May with former Assembly Speaker and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. Let's get back into our conversation with perhaps California's most skilled tactician at getting political power and keeping it. I want to ask, you know, you you became Speaker in 1980. You lost in uh, 74. You won in 1980. um, And you did it with a lot of Republican votes. Um, And, you know, Marisa was asking about the very beginning of your career in politics with the NAACP and the protests. And as you got to Sacramento and accumulated more power, you moved to the middle, I think it's fair to say. There were some issues that you, like you just talked about, where you were, you know, you were a staunch ally. But you took money from tobacco, you took money from banks, you took money from, you know, a lot of corporate interests, trade interests. Um, and there were people who felt that maybe there was a for sale sign on the Capitol. What are you, what's your response? Jess Unra had equipped me early on. He said, young man, you know, you voted against me, but be clear. There's some things you may or may not know. One of the things you may not know is how to deal with contributions from people you don't know, from organizations that may be opposed to some of the things you're about. And they'll want to donate to you. Take the donation and then vote your conscience, period. And don't ever give that up. If you ever do, you shouldn't hold public office. The FBI thought that you were on the take, though, and they launched at one point an undercover investigation that was actually put into motion by a Republican who then got caught up in the investigation himself. (laughs) I mean, it's wild. The whole thing is wild. Talk about that. This was a, an attempt by them to run a bill for a shrimp company, and they just started trying to hand out like envelopes of cash. One of your staff members got one like left on her doorstep and gave it back. No. <laughs> Not inaccurate. You're talking about Karen Sonoto. My instructions to my staff people, implementable and enforced by maybe the most important staff person ever in my life, a woman named Eleanor Johns. She worked for me for more than 40 years. She handled everything connected with money in my world, including my own resources. My members of my family disliked intensely having to get money from Eleanor. But Eleanor had the responsibility to handle every aspect of whatever money, political and otherwise. And as a matter of fact, she died about a month, month, two weeks ago. And 
I'm still arguing with the bank because I, in the last month, start signing the checks, and the checks didn't click <laughs> because she had been signing my name all those years, <laughs> and we're now working that out. Um, and, but Eleanor was so religious and so focused and so dedicated, she made sure that the issue of money and where it, how it got moved or not moved. The Republicans, who assisted me in becoming Speaker, did so, I think, with the idea that in a very short period of time, no black guy is going to be able to run something as important as the legislature, period, and that I would screw it up. Mm. I didn't at all. They fought among themselves on the basis for a long period of time. And they finally decided, wait a minute, why don't we see if we can't set it up so that he ends up getting prosecuted? And they set about, talked to the FBI, a fellow named Nolan, Patrick, Patrick Nolan, was the Republican head of the House at that time. And he told the FBI, that he thinks that uh, Willie Brown's a crook and that uh, he would like to help them uh, get me. <laughs> and he started to work for them. Every week he'd report to them about the third or fourth week. Some smart FBI guy said, you know, there's something wrong because everything he's told us has been inconsistent with reality. None of it is proven true. He may be covering something up. He went to jail. <laughs> he went to jail because he didn't do what I had done and what Eleanor enforced. The item you reference was a fundraising event, $1,000 a person. Lou Rawls was performing, was in Sacramento, black tie, and I gave the best parties. I mean, the absolute best. I gave parties like you wouldn't believe, fundraising parties. Uh, and, and people loved attending. And the staff people were instructed specifically, you never ever take any cash contributions from anybody, your mother, your father, nobody. These two FBI guys who are running this shrimp deal <laughs> sees this Japanese lady, find out where she lives, and showed up at her house, waited for her when she came home, and uh, said, we want to buy two tickets to the party that uh, Speaker Brown is having. And she says, not a problem. Uh, they said, here. She said, no, 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 no. We don't do cash. They said, uh, well, uh, we'd like to pay. She said, there's an SNL right down the street. See it? Go down there and get uh, a, um, a they Money call order. A cashier's check. Or cashier's check or some other form and bring it back and I'll get you two tickets. Sure enough, they did. They brought it back. She got him two tickets. And she was proud of herself for having sold two tickets without any issue. About a month later, 
Now, I filed a campaign, Eleanor filed a campaign report listing the names given. Lo and behold, a month later, the Sacramento Bee listed those two names as being part of a scam operation put for the FBI in order to nail people. I had filed my campaign report put together by Eleanor, and I'd listed those scam names. I held a press conference, and I announced that uh, just what I told you about um, how that money came to reach my coffers. And I was asked, and do you intend to return it? Of course not. They attended the party. What I do intend to do is I intend to change the name of the donors and place the FBI as being, so on my campaign report is the name of the FBI having donated $2,000 to me. They never, ever again, never bothered to go after Willie Brown. They went after a lot of other people, but they gave up. And then when one of the FBI guys, many years later, um, I guess he was retiring or something, but he came, I'm now the mayor. He came to City Hall. I didn't even know who he was. And my office said that uh, there's a guy that said he's formerly an FBI man, and he'd like to say hello to you. Well, oh my God, is he alone? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is he wearing a wire? Yeah. <laughs> no, just, <laughs> and he said, uh, well, uh, yeah, he's alone. Oh, well, send him in. I see everybody. So he comes in, and he said, I want to give you a gift. I said, what is the gift? And it was a cap that said FBI. I said, why are you giving me the cap? He said, I'm retired now, and there's a cap that I wore. And I wore that cap all the time that we were trying to get you. <laughs> we gave up. He said, we gave up because we decided that either you're the most honest person we've ever tried to get or you're the smartest. <laughs> but either way, we didn't get you. Yeah. Well, you were, so, go ahead, sorry. So over the years, no matter what was suspected or implied, uh, the product and the result of those kind of efforts is very clear. Yeah. Nonetheless. I'm still out of jail. <laughs> You are, but there are others uh, that you brought into government. Uh, Mohammed Nuru, who you brought in when you were mayor, Ed Lee promoted him. Uh, the Kellys, Harlan Kelly and Naomi Kelly, uh, got caught up in another FBI investigation uh, that some think Ed Lee was really the original target of. Um, these are, and as you say, you've never, you've never been convicted or even charged with anything. Did they not get the? Were they not there when you explained to them how to, you know, keep out of trouble? <laughs> I frankly have no idea. I don't know why anybody connected with government at any point would do anything that might get them time, or get them discredited in some fashion. The one thing that 
my family, when I left Mineola, I was sent to San Francisco. I didn't come here. Uh, I didn't know anything about San Francisco. I knew I had two uncles out here, but I knew absolutely nothing. My mother was certain that my life would not be a good life to be living in Texas. And all she said was, go on out there, but don't let those uncles teach you anything <laughs> like your grandmother did. I want you never, ever to do anything that would embarrass you, me, or any member of the family. And that was a deal that I made with my mother. And I, and it, I think that people ought to have some center point or some guideline or some guidepost that they really uh, embrace and let that be the guidepost. You cannot benefit from any crookedness, in my opinion, period. And you don't ever, uh, you don't ever uh, have that happen unless somewhere that guidepost that you had didn't work. Mayor Willie Brown, we got to leave it there. Thank you for coming <laughs> in. Thank you all for coming. We want to thank Ryan Davis for putting this whole thing together, Yoan Martinez, Danny Sarkra, Jim Bennett, and the whole live team. Thanks to you all for joining this live edition of Political Breakdown. You can learn more about other live shows at kqed.org slash live. And don't forget to tune into our show, Political Breakdown. It runs on KQED Thursday nights at 6.30, public radio. You can always get it on your podcast feed. And thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.